This is Corolla Digital. From Level 5 City in Glendale, it's This Week with Larry Miller. Good evening, Mr. and Mrs. America, and everyone who never eats too much on Thanksgiving. Hi, folks, and welcome back to This Week with Larry Miller. I'm Larry Miller, but in a way, aren't we all? And boy, oh boy, I know I've said this before. I know I say it every week. But holy mackerel, that music makes me feel good. It's cheerful. And it's, it really reflects me, I think. More importantly, maybe it reflects you, too. Well, it certainly reflects me. In any case, now they get better every week. That's, of course, the Jeff Sawyer Orchestra and the Shirley Phillips Black Dancers featuring boy tenor D.C. Valdez asking the musical question, At what point do two duets become a quartet? Well, D.C., That's a pretty good question. Both the colonel and I looked at each other, nodded, and said, you know what, that's a pretty good question. At what point do two duets become a quartet? And uh, then, frankly, it crossed my mind, at what point do two solos become a duet? But never mind that now. We have a question from D.C. At what point do two duets become a quartet? You know what? It's so hard to be a composer, I think. How are you a composer, whether you're Mozart or some guy last week? You know, all the folks in between there. How do you even decide, I think I'll write a quartet. I think I'll write a duet. How do you figure that out? At what point in the opera do you think you're going to do that? And then where in the world do you get off saying no? I'll write a trio. For goodness sake, I mean, what what difference does it make to to, to anyone? There's beautiful stuff. Don't get me wrong. Quando uh, menvo from La Boheme, unless I'm wrong, is the only trio ever written for opera. It's just gorgeous, by the way. And uh, it was, the, I think, one of the themes from Moonstruck, that wonderful movie with Cher and, oh, so many great actors in that. But uh, that's that uh, movie uh, by Puccini, rather, the opera. Quando men vo, quando men vo, soleta per la via, no gente sostai mia. Da 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 And, by the way, don't worry. I'm going to stop singing there. But the the truth is, how do you decide to write that? There were three characters on the stage, yes, and she's singing. You know what that means, actually? When I walk down the street, that's what that means. She's saying, it's. she's happy about that. She's saying, when I walk down the street, all the young men look at me and say, <whistles> I don't know if she actually whistles there, but so at any rate, D.C., at what point do two duets become a quartet? Well, I think the point may be 
where the producer of the opera says, look, my girlfriend and her girlfriend want to be in that song, and that means it can't be duet anymore. It's going to have to be a quartet. I have a feeling the composer, a good composer, a smart composer, will look at the producer and just say, for how much? And when the producer says to him, well, I'll give you an extra, I'll buy you a giant sandwich for lunch tomorrow, that's good enough. And the composer says, you've got it. That duet is now a quartet. If it's not then, D.C., I'll be honest with you, I don't know. So at what point do two duets become a quartet? The answer would have to be, you got me. And I feel pretty smart now, by the way, too, because not because I answered that question that way, but I feel smart because Colonel Jeff and Dr. Chris and Adam Carolla and I just had our apple break. And I brought the apples today. And I said, to, I saw Adam in the hallway and I said, Hey, do you like apples? Would you like to join us on our apple break? And he said, Well, I have nothing against apples, but. I'll tell you, whenever you get a fruit cup, you ever notice that the one thing left at the bottom every time are those two or three slices of green apple? And I said, I'll be honest, you make a good point. And I uh, said, would you like to join us uh, for one? He said, sure, I'll be in there. So we did. Uh, Colonel Jeff took out his switchblade and washed it up this time, didn't you? And I was wrong last week. He doesn't keep it in his pocket. He has a special holder on the side of his pants, and the switchblade goes there. So it's perfectly visible. And look, I adore the guy. We work well together, and we're friends. So I'm not going to say anything worse than kind of makes him look like a nerd, but just kind of. In any case, he cut those apples. And I'm here to tell you, folks, I brought those apples this week, and I did for a reason, because... Colonel Jeff brings good apples and uh, fancy apples. I call them two-name apples because they have two names. You know, it's always the Roman Spring, you know, the name of the apple there, the uh, the shiny crystal or something like that. And uh, my apples were something I saw in our local Ralph's just a few days ago, and I saw them from about 50 feet away. My eye, like a cartoon, that dotted line came out of the eye and went right to that little, little tiny section. And it was small. And I saw them. And, folks, that apple only has one name. Can you guess it? It's called Macintosh. That's right. The apple I want. The apple I love. The apple I've always wanted and needed and can't get. For some reason, I and I darted over with, with my empty, well, shopping cart now that I just got at the Ralph's, and I went there, and this, by the way, was about 7 o'clock at night, and my wife was home, one of the kids is home, and he had just had dinner, and I said, you know what, relax, I'm going to Ralph's, and I'm going to get you something good for dinner. He didn't have his dinner yet. That's right. And I saw those apples, and he likes them, too. Everyone in my family likes Macintosh apples. Or they're just telling me that. But in any case, they do, and I do. And I went over to, there was a guy stacking other apples in the bin next to it. And I said, Macintosh? 
Mac, when did you get Macintosh? And he was a young fella in his 20s, and he said to me, oh, you know, those makers, they, it's, oh, it's always hard to pin them down. And uh, he started giving me, well, what, what, what a line, I would call that. It's just a line. And uh, meaning he was just sort of saying something that I think he's supposed to say. And I said to him, hold it right there, please. You know what? You're talking to someone who's been looking for Macintosh apples for years. You guys don't have them for years. And I was smiling as I said this. But he knew I wasn't smiling inside. And I said, I'm the guy who's looking for the Macintosh apples. And he said to me, everyone always asks me about the Macintosh apples. And I said, see? Well, I'm one of those people. And this means the world to me. And he, I said, why, why don't you get that? Uh, is there any chance they're going to be coming back? And he said, well, the makers of the app, and again, he said the same thing, which just doesn't ring true to me. I don't know why I said, it seems to me there's somebody in the offices here at Ralph's who just has a thing against Macintosh apples or some guy named Macintosh. And I want to just say for this moment right here, please, folks out there, Every one of you, any one of you who knows something about Macintosh apples, please let me know. Let us know here. And our website, you know, is LarryMillerPodcast.com. Who's on the mountain? Tom Mix. Go to LarryMillerPodcast.com and send us a note, a letter, and tell me what happened to Macintosh apples. Is there something? Is there a guy named Macintosh? Is there some reason that I can get them when I'm on the road? If I'm in Indiana or Texas or or anywhere or in New York, I can go to a supermarket near the hotel. And if I feel, you know, well, if I want to, if I want to spend a couple of bucks and, and take a bag of apples back to the hotel room, and who doesn't, and I, they, they have Macintosh, Macintosh apples, and they do... I will do that. I will get a bag of three or four apples, because I'm only going to be there a couple of days anyway, and I will have a Macintosh apple right then in the hotel room, and I will call home, and I will say to my wife, Honey, guess what? I just bought a bag of Macintosh apples, and I my other son is on the phone there, and the other kid, as, as you know, one of our kids is a Marine now, so he's not there, but he loves Macintosh too. And, folks, I tell them all, I just got a bag of Macintosh apples, and I can just hear them thinking, holy mackerel, why do we have to listen to this? But, folks, please write us and tell us what Macintosh means and why there's a shortage somewhere all around Southern California for some reason. And where the employees of a store have to give a story that just sounds made up to me. And is there something I'm missing about Macintosh apples? Because I'm here to tell you, the ones I brought today were good. And everyone agreed. Colonel Jeff said, and Dr. Chris said, and Adam said, you know what? That's a heck of an apple. And Colonel Jeff cut both of them up with his switchblade, and we had plenty of apples. Well, because when you're having one in a studio and, you know, it's during your prep time for a show, it's not as if everyone needs his own apple. If you have, well, two side pieces, that's pretty good for an apple snack. In any case, please write me and tell me 
What in the world happened to Macintosh or what you know about Macintosh? By the way, that's spelled capital M, small c, not A-C, capital M, small c, I-N-T-O-S-H. Okay, please let us know and you'll have a new friend in me. And by Amazon. That's right, Amazon. Still the best company in the world. If a company could sell Macintosh apples, I'll bet you Amazon could and would. Amazon still has the best company in the world to me. What they do is, folks, whatever you want, whatever you ask for, whatever you need, they will send it to you. So you're happy, they're happy, and then they send us, Colonel Jeff, Dr. Chris, and me... They send us a percentage of whatever you order. So we're all happy. To me, that's a great company where everyone leaves the deal happy. And you just go to Amazon, right? Wrong! You don't go. What you, you don't do any. What you do is go to our website, LarryMillerPodcast.com. You go to ours. We have a banner that says Amazon. You click that and then go take a nap. That's right. You go to sleep. Open a magazine and put it over your face and lean back in that big, comfy football chair of yours and go to sleep, and we will take you to Amazon. Dr. Chris and Colonel Jeff and I will wake up. could be the middle of the night. We will get up, and we will come to the studio, and we will get you to Amazon. We will do it all. And by PayPal. That's right, PayPal. Still the greatest name to say, the most fun to say, PayPal. Those two P's are terrific. PayPal. And what you do is, folks, if you associate yourselves with PayPal, you'll be glad you did. You feel like an Eagle Scout. You feel like a solid American. It'll make you feel like you're really supporting the whole world. And what you do is, by the way, this is always my suggestion to you, go to your local bar, your favorite bar. Go there at 2 or 3 in the afternoon one day when no one's in there, no one's having a drink, No one's in the restaurant part having a meal. Nothing is going on. The bartender is just standing behind the bar with his leg up on the speed rack doing a crossword puzzle. And when he says, what can I do for you? You say, how much do you guys charge for a drink? Whatever he says, you send us here three times that. And that will provide a drink for Colonel Jeff, one for Dr. Chris, and one for me. And we will put that money towards our next big fancy fried chicken dinner, which we're still saving for. At any rate, thank you, Amazon. Thank you, PayPal. And that brings us to my favorite part of the show, the joke (laughs) of the week. (laughs) That just tickles me. I really thought I would get through it with mine. There is something about a, a timpani like that just going up. The joke (laughs) just tickles me. Of the week. And why a little bongo drum like that? Why did Colonel Jeff pick these two? You got me. I don't know. And I'll be honest. I don't think he knows either. But it, it works there. So in any case, this is the joke of the week. Two old friends in New York City are walking along the street, and they've just come from Temple. They're Jewish, and they're, oh, they've known each other for years. 
They're both in their 60s. They've known each, other, known each other their whole lives. And they uh, pass a very lovely Catholic church that's open, and they have a sign out that says, hey, this week and this week only, if you come in, if you convert, if you become a Catholic in our church, everyone who comes in gets $100 for doing that. And they say to each other, the two friends, gee, how do you like that? You go in to convert, you become a Catholic in this church here, and they'll give you a hundred bucks. And uh, one of the friends says to the other, "Boy, uh, would you know you feel like doing that?" And he says, "No, I don't want to. You know, it's uh, for people who are serious and they're you know they they mean it in their hearts and they they want to convert. So it's I wouldn't uh, I, I wouldn't infringe on that. I wouldn't you know for, for, uh, what doesn't matter what the reason is." And uh, the other friend says, "Yeah, I kind of agree with you, but you know." Well, it's a hundred bucks. I wonder how long. And they ask someone coming out, "How long does that take?" And the guy says, uh, "Well, just about twenty minutes." Really? And so they look at each other again. And twenty minutes. And the second friend says, "I'm going to go do it. I'm going to go. You know what? Because we 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 just came out of temple and we were going to go get a bite to eat. And well, holy mackerel, they, they'll give you a hundred dollars. And uh, so you know what? You uh, wait on the corner there, and I'll <laughs> I'll be out in twenty minutes." And uh, they both do that. The first friend goes and waits on the corner, and the second friend goes right into the church and closes the door. 20 minutes to the dot, right on it. 20 minutes later, that second friend comes out of the church and looks up and down the block, sees his friend on the corner and goes over there. And uh, and they're both smiling. And the first friend says to him, uh, well, did they, did they give it to you? Did they give you the $100? And the second friend says, uh, you know what? With you people, it's always about the money. <laughs> and then I don't know what happens after that. I'm guessing they still went to dinner because, after all, it's 7 at night. You're hungry. Before they go home to their families, they want to have a bite together. Anyway, that uh, tickled me, tickled Colonel Jeff. And there you have it. That's right. My favorite part of the show, the joke <laughs> of the week. I thought I might catch Dr. Chris unawares, but no, he was right on it there. And now it's time for my second favorite part of the show, the Poetry Corner. Yes. <laughs> Even with that guy coughing, nothing against him. Oh, that's so sweet. Yes, the Poetry Corner. And you know what? It's it's nice. A good poem can take your heart away and make you as interested and as touched as a good joke. There's nothing, nothing better than a good joke and nothing better than a good poem. And this one is by... Christina Georgina Rossetti. I have read uh, things from her before. She was an English poet, uh, born in 1830 and died in 1894. And this one is very lovely, I think, and Colonel Jeff thought the same thing. It's called Dreamland. Where sunless rivers weep their waves into the deep, she sleeps a charmed sleep. 
Awake her not. Led by a single star, she came from very far to seek where shadows are her pleasant lot. She left the rosy morn, she left the fields of corn, for twilight cold and lorn, and water springs. Through sleep as through a veil, she sees the sky look pale, and hears the nightingale that sadly sings. Rest, rest, a perfect rest, shed over brow and breast, her face is toward the west, the purple land. She cannot see the grain ripening on hill and plain. She cannot feel the rain upon her hand. Rest, rest forevermore upon a mossy shore. Rest, rest at the heart's core till time shall cease. Sleep that no pain shall wake, night that no morn shall break, till joy shall overtake her perfect peace. Isn't that nice? Dreamland by Christina Georgina Rossetti. I hope you like that. And Colonel Jeff and I thought, maybe she's asleep, maybe she's having a deep sleep, maybe she's a visitor, well, from a strange land where they have fields waving and grains growing, but now she's in a different place. Or maybe it just struck me. Maybe maybe she's passed away. Maybe she's died. Maybe she's in her grave. And that's what they mean, that the sleep, sleep that no pain shall wake, night that no morn shall break, till joy shall overtake her perfect peace. That joy being, well... Maybe it's uh, joy meaning life forever. How about that? In any case, thank you, Christina, Georgina Rossetti, for Dreamland. And thank you, folks. Pass that joke and that poem on to any of your loved ones or friends you feel like it. And now, the third favorite part of the show for me. MMM, the triple M, 3M, Magic Movie Moment. I just love that last piano note. And this is, again, as, as meaningful to me as a good joke or a good poem, a magic movie moment. Something you've seen in a movie for comedy or drama, and it's something you've seen, if you've seen that movie 25 times, you look forward to seeing this 25 times, too. It could be a scene. It could be a part of the script. It could be the way it's shot between two buildings. It could be an actor's or an actress's performance. Or a great part of that script that you look forward to. And it could have nothing to do with anything, but you like it, and it creates something more meaningful in that great movie. And that's why I call it a magic movie moment. And this one is from a movie that Colonel Jeff and I both just love. It's called Slapshot from 1977, starring Paul Newman and, oh, so many other great actors in this movie. And uh, you know something? And directed, by the way, by George Roy Hill. Look him up. He's directed so many great things. And uh, didn't you say Butch Cassidy was one of them? Butch Cassidy and the Sundance Kid? 
and uh, I just upset Colonel Jeff because he had to sit up now, and he's going to have to look that up. But uh, the oh, the Sting he directed, George Roy Hill directed. Well, that's a pretty great movie too. In any case, Slapshot is a terrific movie. It may not seem like the deepest movie to you. It's about minor league hockey teams and how they get by and how they make a name for themselves. And in this case, it's very good comedy and a very good story, by the way. It's good drama, too, of this is how this team decides they're going to get better known, how this team decides they're going to draw more fans in. And Paul Newman gets everybody. He's on the team. He's the captain of the team. And, well, they're not making a lot of money, and they're just making a living, and they're pretty tough guys, and they're very eccentric, interesting characters to watch develop, just to watch live. And they start to get tough. They start to beat each other up on the ice, and they start to beat everyone else up on the ice. And they really tap into what we all know, but you really forget most of the time, is people love to see a fight in hockey. And these guys give them that times 10. And they really become more popular and they really get to be known and they really get a huge base of fans who love them. And there's so much that goes on with their movie about their marriages, about them losing a wife, losing a girlfriend, getting a wife, getting a girlfriend, losing friends, getting them back. It's a very good movie. In fact, it's kind of a terrific movie. And... There is a scene that's the magic movie moment for me. Paul Newman, as the character, as the captain of the team, who's always trying to get something going for his team. He's trying anything. He makes every call. He goes to every meeting. He contacts, writes every letter. He does everything just to get more opportunity to sell that team to a better organization, to get that team where they're making more money. He's really involved, and he gets a meeting. He goes to see the new owner of the team, played by Catherine Walker, a terrific actress, who, by the way, was first married to the great Doug Kenny, who was uh, with the National uh, Lampoon. He was with the Harvard Lampoon, and uh, he... What a great writer. What a great performer. He wrote and was in Animal House. And he's passed on now. He uh, Well, he died very young, but you know what? God bless him. He was great. And at any rate, you, when Catherine Walker is married to someone like that, you have to think. I do anyway. Well, she must be terrific then. She must be pretty cool to make a guy like that care for her. And Catherine Walker's great in this. She plays the new owner of their minor league hockey team. And he goes to see her at her big fancy estate because she's very rich. And he goes to her estate and he's going to talk her into, con her into, well, investing more and taking that team and doing this and that with it this and that and that and this, and making them something. And he finds out in that meeting, in her living room, she makes him a drink, and she has a drink. And he finds out, after just a couple of minutes, she has no interest in this team. She has no interest in him. She's going to sell the team 
and sell its parts and look to just add a little more cash into her zillions of dollars. And that's what she's going to do. And what happens in the scene is it's the first time this character, Paul Newman's character, the captain of the hockey team, it's the first time he realizes he's in the wrong place. He can't get over on her. He's not going to con her. She's going to con him. Only she really doesn't have to. She owns him and she owns that team. She's going to do what she wants with it. Now, it winds up okay, but what he does is he just takes that drink out of his hand, puts it on the table. He won't even drink with her, and he just, for the first time in the movie, tells her straight, tells another character straight to her face what he thinks of her. And it's not overdrawn. It's not a long speech. He says, you're a this, you're a that. And she's, what? What do you mean? And he says, you know what I mean. You're... You have no respect for this. You have no honor in this. And you're talking about your son. Hey, let me tell you something about your son. And then he insults her son, who's a local teenager there. And they're all, well, they're going to fancy school. This is a very rich, fancy family. And you know what? He tells her off, but good. And he stands up and walks out. Walks out on her. But he, what, what he realizes is, it's the point in the movie he realizes he can't beat this. He can't take the team to another level. He can't get past this new owner. And that scene that starts with him so high with a big smile and his big fancy carnival barker voice, carnival barker rather, and he decides, he realizes in the scene... And we realize, too, as we watch it, he's not going to get her. She's got him. And she doesn't even care. She met him just because he called, but she doesn't need to meet him. And she's going to take that team, well, to the garage sale. What happens in that movie is wonderful, and I'm not going to spoil it by telling it to you now, but I'll tell you, folks, the way those characters move Well, that's why it becomes a magic movie moment for me. That movie is far better than you may think it is. If you haven't seen it, please do. Everyone, as Colonel Jeff remembered, everyone in that movie looks real. They all do. The hockey players, like the Hanson brothers, look real. They're all wonderful. And they look like these guys exist. And that's a big part of what makes this movie so appealing. But, folks, Slapshot from 1977, directed by George Roy Hill and starring Paul Newman and, among many others, Catherine Walker. But see that sometime, and I hope you think, too. Boy, that has plenty of magic movie moments in it for you, too. And it struck me because we're coming, well, we're coming up to another Thanksgiving again. You know and I know that Thanksgiving is coming up soon. It's in, well, about uh, a little more than a week. And you know what, folks? What does Thanksgiving mean? I don't mean really mean in our hearts. I don't mean how did it start. What does it really mean? And I was thinking back to, 
Well, first of all, what's my Thanksgiving going to look like this year? Well, my wife has invited some folks over, and that's never easy to do, as you know. Man or woman, single or married, it doesn't matter what you do or what you are. If you invite 15 people over, that's a beefy day. That's a day that involves a lot of preparation, a lot, never mind the food, a lot of chairs and tables and forks and plates, and then a lot of food preparation. And when you do it well, it becomes a terrific meal, well, a terrific meal, but it reminded me of a pre-Thanksgiving memory of my Thanksgiving as a kid. Every year, our Thanksgivings, because... Every holiday when I was a kid, every holiday was at our house. That's what it was. The whole family, I mean the whole family, came out. We lived on Long Island in New York, so everyone in our family, in Brooklyn or Manhattan or Queens or New Jersey, everyone came to our house. Now, that's one of those family things of you might ask, I might ask, why would they do that? Why would they come to our house? But you know what they did every year? Because those were still the days when I was first member. I was six or seven years old when I started remembering these things. And they all came out and drove out to our house. And there were uh, we had a dining room table with eight chairs around it, three on either side. And uh, my dad could add those slats that go into the middle of a dining room table and just make it bigger. And so it was three seats on each side. And one seat on one end and one on the other end for my mom and dad. And all the relatives would come out. Uncle Harry, Uncle Arnie, Uncle Morris, all the kids, all the wives, all the cousins. And we still had in those days a kid's table. I don't know about you, but we had, uh, so there were eight seats at the dining room table. But we had a kid's table, and I was at the kid's table. All the kids were at the kid's table. And the kid's table, in our case, was a couple of those folding leg card table tables, uh, bridge table tables, with some uh, folding metal chairs. And we uh, just put them up next to the dining room table. So they were in the living room, just shorter than the dining room table, like us. And we sat there, and we were pretty good kids. You know, we had our... I guess we came from the family of where everyone, including the kids, wore shirt and tie and little sport coat and your pair of good shoes, and they were pretty good shoes. I just remember good shoes meaning you had to tie them. That's the only thing I remember about good shoes. Were they good? I don't know. Were they better than regular shoes? I don't know. But we were at the kids' table, and you know something? I used to really look forward to those days because I never really saw all the tension and hatred that existed between members of of a family. Now, they really got along fine, and they really cared about each other the way all families should. And you know what, though? When they all got to that house, first of all, did you have appetizers or did you not? Colonel Jeff's family had appetizers. Dr. Chris, did your family have appetizers? Neither did he's shaking his head. And uh, neither did mine. We didn't have any appetizers because 
I think in those days, first of all, my mom, God bless her, used to make a heck of a meal, a big meal. I mean, not just a turkey, but a brisket. And I mean, <laughs> Colonel Jeff is shaking his head. I know, but that that was good, too. So that by when you eat appetizers, if you go to someone's house and there are appetizers, and my dad used to make a homemade, a great chopped liver, and if, if you... Oh, boy, that was so good. And if you have a couple of those or like a piece of rye bread loaded with chopped liver and then like to put a couple of onions on top and some potato chips and a pickle, well, as you can tell, that's a meal. That was your meal right there. And that's why I was never crazy about appetizers to begin with. You don't need a, a huge hunk of cheese, a wheel of brie, just to get you ready to eat a real heavy meal. And like a turkey, a brisket, my mom used to make also, she was great at this, uh, a sweet potato pie with sweet potatoes, the orangey stuff that you chop it all up and you bake it, and with the crust of marshmallows on top. Every single year, we never had that any other time, but on Thanksgiving, she would make that. It looked so good to me every time she did. When she brought that out, I was proud of her because I used to think, how can you do that? How can anyone do that? How can you just make that? And it looked perfect, and it was perfect. And until you eat it, when it's terrible, by the way, it's a very bad food. Every single year, I would put some on a plate, and I'd say, this is just gorgeous. And I would take another bite again with a piece of marshmallow on it and the sweet potatoes. Couldn't eat it. Terrible, terrible food. But God bless her, she made it beautifully, and it was great to look at. And, boy, all the other stuff that on the side, those were just sort of the main dishes. And sometimes there'd be, you know, a couple of whole chickens, too. This was uh, not for that many people, by the way. This wasn't like a Roman orgy. But, I mean, she made a ton of food. And the side dishes as well, you know, a huge salad with all sorts of, well, olives. And, you know, because when you think of it, by the way, that famous Norman Rockwell Thanksgiving painting of his, that looks like every American Thanksgiving. It looks like the way it should all be. It's all the relatives and the family around the dining room table. And if I remember correctly, there are, well, three on each side again or four on each side again. And, uh, well, there comes Grandma out with the platter with the turkey on it. That always amazed me, by the way, because you don't notice it. But Grandpa already has the carving tools in his hands. He's got the giant fork and the giant knife. And Grandma is the one who carried the huge platter with the turkey on it from the kitchen to the dining room table. And she's smiling and she's happy. You know, you don't see her the veins and the neck straining because it's 35 pounds of something to lift up. But if you think about it, that table in that Norman Rockwell painting... Well, it's a great painting, like all of his, his things, for, uh, for so many reasons. But that table looks like a real Thanksgiving table. You think, that must be the best Thanksgiving dinner anyone's ever had. Next time you see it, though, look at that table. There's really nothing on it. I mean, not like the way you and I are used to a Thanksgiving dinner, which is like a Roman feast. And that table, though, in the Norman Rockwell painting... They bring the turkey. The turkey looks good. 
and it's about eight adults sitting around there, and, well, they'll do some pretty good damage to that turkey. But you know what else is on that table? Well, there's an oval glass bowl with uh, some celery and olives in it, but it's just a couple of pieces of celery and just a couple of olives. And then you look around the table, and that's about it. There's really nothing. They didn't have any appetizers either, but Grandpa's better, well, Grandpa better start carving that turkey soon because people drove from Brooklyn and they're ready to eat. In any case, though, my mom, God bless her, made a great meal every year, a huge meal and a great meal. You could make a plate full, and it was never too much food, though. It was always just good. You had, you could put on your plate, even us at the kids' table could put, well, a nice piece of turkey and, well, a nice piece of brisket and stuffing. And remember, I would always put some of that sweet potato pie on. Not much, because I know I'd hate it. But you know what? There was so much good stuff and green beans in some kind of, well, garlicky sauce, I think, and... Holy mackerel, that was good food. That was a good feed. And we all tucked into it, and we all loved it, except my Uncle Joe and his family. Now, I really liked them. My father had a twin sister, Eileen. uh, Oh, I'm sorry, Arlene. And uh, Arlene was, um, uh, well, a couple of minutes older than him. Those were the days, by the way, I might have mentioned this before. They had an apartment in Brooklyn, and he was born on the kitchen table in their apartment. Now, that may sound ridiculous, but that's the way people would do it a lot of the time. You know, this this wasn't somewhere in the middle of China or Africa somewhere. This was just in Brooklyn. And if people didn't have, well, the money to go to a hospital, the mother would give birth in the apartment there. And in this case, it was on the kitchen table. And she uh, gave birth to my Aunt Arlene first. And her sister, Etty, was there. And uh, that was it. It was just the two of them. Because that was enough. And it wasn't the days when the men would stand by and hold your hand and just say, Oh, honey, I love you. It was the man's job to get out. And the men would go to a bar. And they'd stand there and then glance at their watches. And then relax at the bar for a few hours, and then go back home. At any rate, uh, my Aunt Arlene was born out of my grandmother. And that's, I mean, just saying it that way, can you imagine just giving birth to someone on a kitchen table in Brooklyn? And she gave birth to my Aunt Arlene and her sister. Well, first of all, they wrapped the baby in whatever you do. I guess you boil the clothes or something or other. And... They stood up with the baby, and her sister helped her up off the table, and she, uh, you know, took a couple of steps because they were going to go to the bathroom then. You're going to, well, you'll take a shower. And uh, tough people, tough people. And she went a few steps and uh, just stopped walking, and uh, her sister said, what's wrong? And my grandmother said, I don't think I'm done yet, which is not something you hear a lot during a birth. You don't think you're done yet, but they didn't panic. They'd say, all right, you didn't, you're not done yet. So she turned around, walked back to the kitchen table, laid herself down on the kitchen table again, 
and gave birth to my father. And then they wrapped him up. Again, no one thought, neither of them panicked. Oh, oh, Lord, what do we do now? Well, they did what they did. And then she got up again. The babies are both wrapped. And uh, her sister said to her, do you think you're done now? And she wasn't kidding. She wasn't making fun of her. And my grandmother thought for a second and said, yeah, I think I am. I think I'm done. And that, and, uh, <laughs> and that was that. And that was, by the way, those two were always at our Thanksgiving dinners. And what I can't let go of, by the way, just that story. I love that story because it's so homey. It's so American. It's so interesting to me. But what I love most is, you know, they after they cleaned off my grandmother, they cleaned off the kitchen table because that's where you're going to eat. When the men came back from the bar, well, they got to have dinner. Somebody's going to cook dinner. Where are you going to eat the dinner? Over the sink? No, you're going to eat at the kitchen table. These weren't fancy apartments, but that's where you got to eat. And none of the men would say, hey, wait a minute, where'd you give birth? No, this is just life moving on. So the how are the babies? The babies? How's the baby? Well, we had two. Really? All right, what's for dinner? So that you just move on with life. Well, what's for dinner is... Uh, over here, we, I made some of this. I made some sweet potato pie and perhaps part of the babies. But you know what? I like that. I love those stories. Those are just tough stories. Those people, I think I may have mentioned this already, but those people used to, they used to put the kids, my dad and his sister and their brother, and they used to put them on the fire escape during the summers with a couple of blankets on the fire escape because there's... Number one, no air conditioning. Number two, no fans. There's nothing. And that apartment could be like Iraq. You know, that apartment could be in the summer, 130 degrees in the middle of the night there. And so you'd go out onto the... They, the kids would sleep on the fire escape. And I used to say to my dad when I was a kid, well, that's so cool. Wow, that's really great. And he finally told me, you know, we didn't do it because we wanted to. It wasn't something we did for fun or an adventure. It was just, well, it was like a sauna bath in that place. But at any rate, they were there at our house at Thanksgiving. And Uncle Joe, who was married to my Aunt Arlene, and they had three daughters, and they came out, they drove out from Manhattan every year. And folks, every single year, he got lost. He got lost Every single year. That's my whole childhood and adolescence. And no one else did. All the other uncles, all the other families, all the other cousins, everyone drove right out to the house. Because they were there every year. They knew where it was. Uncle Joe, God bless him, never knew. He was the classic man, also wouldn't stop for directions. And always, folks, always to the minute you could have a stopwatch, it was two hours late. Every single year, two hours late, and he was a tough guy, and his wife, my Aunt Arlene, was a tough woman, tough old bird, and uh, they didn't mind getting mad at each other, and three girls would be in the back seat, and they'd get to that place, so my mom would start dinner for everyone, oh, about uh, 45 minutes in, so long before they got there, but after a brief nod at waiting for them, because everyone knew they were never going to make it, and she would start in, 
And boy, we had a good family. No appetizers. And uh, just uh, Colonel Jeff and I were saying, by the way, for appetizers, maybe we're going to throw a meal one day with chopped liver, artichoke dip. Colonel Jeff said he has a great artichoke dip recipe. And uh, cocktail nuts, and which we both agreed. Cocktail nuts was that can of planters, peanuts, nuts. And it always said cocktail nuts. And all you knew was that there would be things in there that are never, ever seen in another can except at Thanksgiving. There were the things in that can. Somebody would always look at it and say, what's the big one? No one ever knew. You didn't know. I don't know. And we had one uncle. You had this uncle, too. We had one uncle, (laughs) Uncle Lou, who knew a different racial insult for every nut in the bowl. I I still don't know the real names of the nuts in that bowl. But every single year, Uncle Lou would start to say one, and my mom would shake her head and say, Oh, Lou. And my dad would say, he would tell one anyway. You couldn't stop him. He would tell one, and my dad would say, and he wouldn't whisper this. He would just say across the table, put a sock in it, fatso. And that wasn't meant cruelly. It wasn't something where people would say, oh, how could you say that? It would just stop Uncle Lou from going past the Brazil nuts. In any case... Our Thanksgiving was beautiful because, like yours, I'll bet, the whole operation from 3 in the afternoon till 9 at night had nothing to do with the pilgrims. It had to do with you and me. It had to do with our families. But it had nothing to do with what Thanksgiving really meant and how it really started or the Pilgrim Thanksgiving. Did they have a kids' table at the at the Pilgrim Thanksgivings? By the way, just a, just a stray thought there. You never know. But folks, I hope you have a great Thanksgiving this year. It is very meaningful. I hope you take the time not just to make a huge pile of food, and not just to get mad at each other for being late. Why didn't you wait for us? But you know what? Take that moment that's so important to all of us. Look around. Oh, welcome everyone at the table there. Say a prayer before everyone eats and look around and smile at each other and say, you know what? It's good to be here again. And that makes you and I, once again, well, we know the same things. Homer is Homer and Pluto is a planet. If you like the show, tell a friend. And as always, remember, if you walked out of bed today and had a job to go to and a home to come back to and someone there who cares about you folks, the game's over and you've won. And that's still the truest thing I know. Happy Thanksgiving, folks, and we'll see you here next time.